Okay, you'll know we are uh, week four of a journey through the cross, um, looking at the cross over these four weeks. Um, this morning we're going to go into rescue and triumph. And that's a difficult area to get into if this works. You'll see up there I've got a stack load of biblical references. It's going to be quite a long morning. In actual fact, I'm just going to set a stopwatch to help me while I know what's going on. But I battled with this message for the last few weeks, and I think there is no other way than to keep delving back into the Scriptures, to keep hammering back into the whole of the Scriptures. We are going to be going back into the Old Testament. We are going to be coming in through the New Testament, and we are going to be rolling out the other end. Because the understanding of this cross can only be seen in the light of the story of God and the world. And that's where the heart of this story lies. So it's going to be a long morning. It's going to be a difficult morning for some of us. It's going to be a bit of a Marmite morning, I would suggest. Sometimes some hate and some like it. It's going to be difficult because we're going to challenge some typical traditional held understandings and just go back into the scriptures and say, actually, is that what it says? Is that really what it is taking us? And I just shared a bit of a journey that I've been on, a journey that I've been on for eight or ten years, of being challenged by some of our understandings, not matching up with the God to which you had come and rescued me, not matching up with my understanding of Jesus in the gospel. So, so we're going to go into that, and it's not, not going to be easy, but we've got to do it, I believe, because as we start to look at this issue of rescue and triumph. We're going to get up to that point and then we're going to have to see that we've got to transfer across into understanding of what rescue and triumph looks like. So when we were planning this series, we talked about it as a bit like a sort of climbing, offering some climbing holds. Any of you been to Boulder Shack down the road? Uh, This is what it looks like. There's walls covered in these things that you climb up. But you don't just climb up any old one. You choose the ones you're going to climb up. And some of them are really quite tricky and others... Uh, are easier. And that's sort of what we're doing over these weeks, is trying to find ways to get up the cross. Paul does it all over his accounts. Paul writes letters to different people. He uses very, very different descriptions of the cross. When he talks to the Romans, he talks in immense cultic sacrificial descriptions. The Romans were into the pleasing of their deities. He, he, He knew that, and he describes it in that way. When he talks to other people, he talks in different ways. And the question for us is, as we, and that thing we did a minute ago, as we describe this to our people and to the people who are coming to know Jesus, are we doing so in a way that they can grasp and understand? So that's our challenge. It's quite a climb. It's going to take us a while. I apologize for what we're going to hack through in in half an hour or so because I've been going through it for a long time. But I hope we'll be able to touch the right things, take away the references, read the, the biblical text and see where we go. So I just want to give us a bit of a thought on actually a way to think about this. Now, this is something that was introduced to me, part of my theology course. Actually, there's a guy called Simon Sinek, if you search for him on uh, TED Talks. You'll find he talks about this idea of sort of concentric ways of thinking, about what and about how and about why. And he describes it, he describes it in terms of organizations. It's, it's, not a, you know, it's not a theological basis he describes it in, but actually he does describe it to talk about Martin Luther King. Um, and does it very well. But what he says is typically we think in a what way. 
What am I going to do? How am I going to do it? And then we sort of, well, why, why am I doing that? And he describes good organizations, or Martin Luther's a good example, they start from the why. Why? Why is this? Why am I doing this? Why am I creating this product? Why am I... And so if that, once I've got that why in my head, the how becomes much easier because now I know what I'm trying to achieve. And ultimately the, the what comes out of what I was trying to achieve. So that's really what we're going to sort of look at this morning. But actually I want to take it a little stage further and to think about who. Because when we look at the cross, the first and crucial question is who? Now there is no question about who is on the cross. But the question is, who is the cross for? Our answer would probably be, well, it's for me and for you, for our sin. And that is entirely right. But the challenge is, when we gave that explanation to that friend or to that new believer, are they left asking the question, why does God need Jesus to die? Are they left asking the question, why does God need his son to be nailed to this vicious Roman instrument of torture because if that is the question we're left with then our explanation is leading them to a different place to the place that God wants them to be I would suggest so we need to have an explanation that takes us to an understanding that the cross is entirely for us the cross is entirely for our sin it's entirely for the problem that our sin has given to us as a sinful humanity And so as we go through, I hope we'll pick up on that uh, and we'll see that. So we are going to start right back at the beginning. So if you want to go into the text, I put the page numbers. I'm not going to particularly read it because if we did, we would be here. I would be buying you lunch. So I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail, but we are back here in the garden. This fine tree covered in fruit is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So... In chapter 3 of, of Genesis, so it's on page 5, so I'm not going to read it in detail, but Adam and Eve are in the garden. This is the tree. And the snake is there. The serpent is there. And the serpent says to Eve, did God really say you should not eat of this tree? He, he challenges her thinking. And of course we know the story. Eve says, well, maybe not. Maybe it's not true. And Eve begins to distrust God. She believes what Satan is saying serpent as Satan is saying well actually is God really true so Eve takes the fruit from the tree and she eats it and Adam too joins in and they eat it so so the story goes on God is walking in the garden Adam and Eve hide Adam and Eve are hiding from God they're ashamed they know what they've done And of course, God knows what they've done too. So the story unfolds. Have you eaten from this tree? Yes, they have. And so God issues out stuff against the snake. He says to the snake, you will be um, forever cursed above all livestock. Then he said to the woman, I will make your pain severe in childbirth, um, painful giving birth, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. He puts this rule over the woman and this is a, as, a, as a penalty for this action. And then to Adam he says, cursed is the ground because of you. You will work the ground. You will be in painful toil. And so he goes on. And then, and then the final thing that happens is God says, right, now I've got a problem. Adam and Eve are in this garden, and if 
And his text comes up, and I've actually got this final bit on here. He says, well, now if the man has become like us, eating good and knowing good and evil, if he takes from the tree of life, he'll live forever. So God vanishes from the garden. And he drove them out, and he placed on the east side a sword. He placed flaming swords to keep the man and the woman out of the garden. So when we're back in Genesis, there's a couple of bits we need to pick up from here until we, as we head towards this cross. The first is the nature of the sin. Was eating the apple the problem? Now, if you're not into your five a day, it's quite a good excuse to say, no, God said I shouldn't eat of the fruit of that tree. But that is probably not what the problem is. Is the problem simply they disobeyed God? Well, yeah, that is a problem. But what I would suggest actually is the heart of the problem is they came to distrust God for who he really was. Their, their, their sin is one of projection. They project a false image of God. God is good. God is their loving father in that place in that garden. And Satan challenges that. And they go, well, maybe God is not good. Maybe God has not given us this instruction for our benefit. Maybe he's hiding something. So they project. So Adam and Eve think God is not who he is. So that's the first point. The second point is when Adam and Eve are rejected for the garden, is this some sort of penalty or is it a consequence? To be sure there are penalties for this, but there is a consequence that man and woman, Adam and Eve, you and I, cannot live in the garden if we don't trust the maker of the garden. Because Eden is not Eden. As the Lord says, I've got a problem. This man has become like one of us. He cannot stay in this place. So that ejection from the garden is a consequence. It's a real consequence for our sin. And as we travel right the way through, we're going to see that at the other end. And this story is a journey of that sin going through with God. And the final point of the question is when they are ejected from the garden, where is God? Is God in the garden? Are they separated at this point? Because God's in the garden, they're not. The very next chapter of Genesis... Four is Cain and Abel, the children of Adam and Eve. And God is there and Cain is plotting the death of his brother and, he's, and God says, Cain, sin is lurking at your door. And then he kills his brother and God is looking down and the blood of his brother is speaking out from the ground. God is very present. And this entire story of the Old Testament is a story about God's presence. If it wasn't a story about God's presence, it would simply be a history of Israel. And you and I would not have read it. It would be no more interesting than Livy's Roman history. It is a story of God's presence in the world. So God is present. And God comes out of that garden with them. Is there separation? Yes, sure there is. Adam and Eve are hiding. And this whole story unveils that. The story unveils when we get to the Israelites. They don't want to see God. They want to stay away. But is God turned away? No, God is in this journey with them. So we come out of Genesis. So Cain and Abel, God is there. We come to Moses. Moses is murdered as an Egyptian. Where's God? God's there with him. This is a murderer. God is now with him. This is a sinful man in anybody's measure. And God is there and God calls him. He says, I want you to rescue my people. I want you to lead my people out of slavery. So we come into the Passover. We can't go into great details of the Passover, but the Passover is a vital link again to the cross. 
It is a vital link in our understanding of this rescue and of this triumph that is affected in this place and time. So in the Passover, what happens, God says, we've had nine plagues on the, on the Pharaoh, who is this character of Satan, the Egyptian army, they are the amassed forces of evil in the world, are not giving in. And God says, right, okay, I want you to slaughter a lamb. Each and every family is to slaughter a lamb and you are to take the blood and you are to paint it on your door frames. And tonight the firstborn of everybody else will die. And so they do that and that happens and then the next day they pass out. They pass through the Red Sea. We did it a few, a few months ago. And behind them is the destruction of Satan and the armies. And they move out into the promised land. It's not the end of this story by any means. Because God is still present with his sinful people who have turned away from him. They still don't believe God who is he says he is. They've just been rescued. But they are moaning. You brought us out into the desert to die. This is God who's brought them out into the desert to die? No, I don't think so. But God is there and God continues to help them. So we see that, that story carry on with the Israelites. Just a point on the Passover lamb as we get there. One of the things to note, and you'll read many, many theologians will say this, that the Passover lamb is not a cultic sacrifice. It's not a typical sacrifice for sin that we will see in the cultic model. And we see in Leviticus and we see in many other cultic cultures at the time, the Romans being no exception. It was not a sacrifice that was killed and used to satisfy the deity. And there's two reasons we know that. One is because actually it's a symbol. It becomes a symbol. The blood is a symbol of allegiance with God, a symbol of following of God and, and protection from against that. But the other is the instructions are very clear. You must eat it all. You must leave nothing of the sacrifice. And if you go into, um, into those stories in Exodus, you'll find that. The instructions are very clear. Every part of that lamb must be consumed by you. Nothing is left to the deity. And that is the principle of a cultic sacrificial system, is actually you feed the deity with the, with the offering, and that doesn't happen here. So we, so we need to bear that in mind. So when that symbol comes on, that's not, we, we need to not have that in our minds. So finally, so Israelites, we should find God with these people constantly. God has not stayed in the garden. God has not got the hump because of their sin. God is traveling this journey. And Jesus comes. The ultimate action of God is to bring Jesus into the world for this sinful humanity. And when he comes into the world, who has the problem? The Pharisees have a problem. What are the problem the Pharisees have? The Pharisees' problem is that this Jesus, this God-man, is not the God they're expecting. What's he doing? He's hanging out with the sinners. He's with the prostitutes. He's with the drunkards. And the Pharisees say, you shouldn't be doing that. God is too holy to be doing that. You can't be the son of God. But that's where Jesus is. Jesus says, I've come as a physician. I've come to bring healing. Not to turn away from these people. And so that is the story of Jesus. And Jesus comes and of course, what does it lead to? It leads to this cross.
It leads to the most vile instrument of torture that you could possibly imagine. It's a very instrument that's rooted in hell. It was an instrument of death, but actually it wasn't particularly effective as an instrument of death. They quite had to speed it up. But it was an instrument to kill people in the most inhumane way possible. It was vile, hideous. They used to have to give up waiting sometimes for people to die on the cross because it took so long. So how did Jesus end up on here? How did Jesus end up in this place? Let's take a a little survey of guilty and not guilty. Who are the people in this story? How does Jesus end up where he ends up? So what about the Jewish leaders? Are they guilty of this or not guilty? I think if we know our gospel accounts, we'll agree they're all guilty. They plot, they openly plot to the death of Jesus. They say it would be better that one man dies. They're guilty. We've got no doubt about that. What about the Roman authorities? Interestingly enough, Pilate tries to get off. His wife has her heads up from God that this isn't a good thing to get involved in. But actually the Roman authorities are culpable. This is a Roman weapon of torture. The Jewish had no rights to execute people. The Roman authorities, they're guilty. The people of Jerusalem, they welcome Jesus. Hosanna. But what happens? Within a few days, he isn't the God they were expecting. They're eating their apple. This isn't what they were expecting. This isn't the right God. What's their answer? Crucify him. Judas. We know his role in it. As Jesus said, one who dips a bread in a bowl will betray me. Woe be it for him. Judas is part of this story. He's part of this brutal execution what about the rest of the disciples we like to think the disciples were these great followers they can't surely be culpable in this event did the disciples get God for who he was did they get Jesus for who Jesus was we see Peter don't we Peter when Jesus says I'm going to die he says no you're not what's Jesus' response Satan get behind me And of course, Peter, who denies Jesus three times. When the Romans come for Jesus, Peter takes out his sword and fights. And Jesus says, what are you doing? When we start to understand this this misprojection of God, this misunderstanding, we see that the disciples are as guilty as the rest of us. We all have our part to play in this. And then, of course, there's Satan. When we talk about rescue and triumph, because we need to think about Satan. Satan's role in this, in the whole story, is no less in this moment. He's the one who places those seeds into Judas's heart. He's the one who's 
purpose is to see the Son of God dead. That's what he wants. So that leaves one person. God. Guilty or not guilty? Of the most hideous crime. I would suggest that this is the depth of human sin. This is the heart of what it is to mistrust a God who says, I love you. A God who says, I will go with you through anything. And Satan thinks, perhaps, if I kill God, then that will be. So while we're here at this cross, and we've seen how Jesus gets on to here, how the sin of the world is undoubtedly upon him, there's a challenge we've got to make to, to something that is, is difficult for us. At this point in time, we will not have a theology that says God is turned away. God is turned away from this because of the sin that Jesus is bearing. The question is, is that a right place for us to be? Because it creates us a bit of a problem. And when we come a bit further on and we start to see this triumphant tonight, we'll see how actually that creates us a bit of a problem. It creates us a whole load of theological problems if it's the case. So where does it come from? Well, there's probably four reasons we take that view, if we do take that view. So first of all, it's Habakkuk. Habakkuk, and if you want to look at it in your Bibles, you will find it on page 940. Um, So Habakkuk, uh, Old Testament prophet. Habakkuk is, is complaining to God. Habakkuk is complaining. And interestingly enough, Habakkuk's complaint to God is primarily the fact that God is not who Habakkuk thinks God should be. Habakkuk is not as... He's complaining that God is not as holy as he thinks he should be. So we get this line in Habakkuk, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate long-doing. And you may have that in mind. You may have had somebody say that to you. God cannot look upon this cross. This is the ultimate sin of humanity. Is God looking on this cross? What does Habakkuk actually say? What does the text actually say? What does the rest of the verse actually say? It says, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? In fact, the Jewish Bible, if you go to a Jewish Orthodox Bible, you will find it says, why lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously? I suggest Habakkuk does not tell us that God does not look at this instrument, does not look at Jesus on this cross. Habakkuk tells us that God does that But Habakkuk and maybe some of us think he shouldn't. So what about the second point? The second point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we take that as a point that Jesus is forsaken by his Father on the cross. As you know, it comes from Psalm 22. Most of you will know it's from Psalm 22. If you were here on Good Friday, we went through that quite a bit. So what is Psalm 22? Well, Psalm 22, in particular, I've been studying it over the last couple of weeks, and David and I had a conversation just yesterday about the beauty of Psalm 22 as perhaps the most amazing prophetic psalm 
about this. And it starts with the line, not even the verse, it starts with the line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So page 554. It's a long psalm. We've got time, but let's go for it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But in verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. They trust in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Do those words not echo at the cross as the mockers come by and they say, if he's the son of God, then let God bring him down off the cross. This is Jesus. Hundreds of years before this moment. Hundreds of years before we got to do this. And it goes on and we go through every line. But so 14 and 15, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. While studying this over the last couple of weeks, it suddenly struck me. On the cross, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do they do? They get wine vinegar and they put it on a sponge and they give it to him to drink. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus didn't say, I'm thirsty? But does it suddenly make you realize that the Israelites at that point, those Jews around him at that time, know this psalm off by heart? And they know that his mouth is dried up like a pot shed because they are waiting for something more. Because there is more. But it goes on a pack of villains encircles me, they pierce my hands and my feet. Are we in any doubt this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ on the cross? No. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them. They cast lots for my garment. But verse 22. It says, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Psalm 22 does not tell us that God is turned away. Psalm 22 tells us that God is in this moment of anguish in its entirety. And our brutality is on display to God as it is to everybody else. And it ends with, they will proclaim his righteousness, describing to a people yet unborn, he has done it. God is there. God is not set apart from this. 
God is there saying, no matter what you do, I will not turn away from you. What is Jesus' response to being put on the cross? It is forgive them. God is saying, there is nothing you can do that I will not forgive. You cannot turn away. God, throughout this story, is like that prodigal father who picks up his cloak to run after us. And the cross is no different. The cross is Jesus running after us and saying, no matter what you do, I will forgive you. No matter whatever you compile on me. And of course, Satan says, if I could kill God, then I really become not the prince of this world, but I become the ruler of this world. So how does he get defeated? He gets defeated by the fact that there is nothing that he has a claim to. Because God says, you can't do it. It doesn't work. Satan is a hollow monster. And God says, there is nothing you have to hold on to these people. If you were here a few weeks ago, why this matters, why we have to understand, I believe deep in my heart, we have to understand that it is our sin that puts Jesus on the cross. It is our brutality. It is our total misunderstanding of God that puts Jesus, he puts God himself on this cross. And these words Louise had a few weeks ago, when violence overcomes violence, violence wins. So if the cross is a violent action against our sin by God, then any defeat that comes with it is a defeat by violence. That is not the Jesus we have. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. See, if Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, any explanation of this cross that does not reflect Jesus, and that's what Paul says in Colossians, needs to be considered a little bit more. Because when love overcomes violence and love wins, I would suggest that the cross is love winning. Love wins. So let's go into Colossians. Let's just have to say that we've heard both these passages this morning. And I don't know whether Louise knew I was going to use both of them, but she picked up both of them. But we're going to go Colossians 2 first, which is uh, 11.8.3. So what does Paul say? He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. What does Christ look like in relation to this cross? What does God look like in relation to this instrument of torture, of death, brutal human destruction? It's funny, actually, I just found this the other day in John's office while he wasn't here, so don't tell him I borrowed it, but... uh, this is Tom Wright, and I just stuck on a page on this. It says, In a way, Western Christianity has taken a small but significant steps away from the full biblical picture, especially the idea of good news. 
He said, because Western Protestants in particular have always claimed to be biblical, they haven't noticed how far they've drifted from the first century way of seeing things. There is thus an ever-increasing gap between those who understand and explore the glorious many-sided world of the Bible and those who have taken one or two ideas from it, puffed them up into entire systems and trumpeted them all the way down the street. This is part of the reason why understanding the original and quite simple good news is harder today than it ought to be. And so that's part of this story is what do we come, how do we get to some of the places we got to? And actually when you sit with theologians who study church history, they will tell you that much of what we take, some of what we, well, a lot of what we take today did not exist in the first 1,100 years of Christianity. We have developed understandings which are based on a tradition that we have picked up. They are based on certain penal models, certain legalistic approaches to a Jesus which does not reflect any of them. So carrying on, verse 9, verse 10. For in Christ the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This is God on the cross. And Christ... And in Christ you have been brought to all fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. I'm writing off of what we see here in terms of ruling and authorities. Jesus is the head. He's the authority. And then 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ, having forgiven us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of legal indebtedness, which was hostile to us. And this is, some of this is taken more from the Greek. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And he nails it to the cross, and in doing so, he has disarmed the powers and authorities. He's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. They have nothing... The powers and authorities have nothing if death is taken from them. And the cross undoubtedly takes that from them. So going back into Colossians 1, just a few things here, giving joyful thanks to the Father who qualified for you for the inheritance of his holy people. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. I've got another bit here. We don't really need to go into that. I'm aware of the time. Okay, no, we will. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Paul is saying we become alienated from God. We have separated ourselves. God has not turned away. That doesn't say that. It says time and time again, reconciling us to him, not him to us. God doesn't have the problem. We have the problem. But just going back into this, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. The dominion of darkness, the darkness is a gathered pace in the Gospels. And the darkness that consumes this moment, the darkness that we might describe as turn away, is the darkness of evil. As we do our best, actually we do our absolute worst. And Jesus rises in glorious light. So that brings us, you might say, well, what's the problem then with sin? If God hasn't got this problem with sin, what is the problem? Well, we saw the problem back here. The problem means we are excluded from this place. So let's carry on the journey right the way forward to here, to heaven. But don't think of heaven as some fluffy cloud. That's not helpful. 
We need to think of heaven in terms of the kingdom. And those words there, when he says, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. This cross affects that entry into that kingdom. So what do we know about heaven? So this is a card I just picked up, I just saw recently. It says, you know, if you believe in heaven, what do you think it's like? And we all like to wonder what heaven's like. But what's the truth? What do we know for certain is not in here? So we go into, we get it to work, Revelations. So 12.49, if you want to go there. But 21. So this is a description. This is Eden restored. This is the recovery of this place. And what does it say? It says, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. The sin, the sin that is in humanity, the sin that is in you and I, is a very practical problem. We cannot enter into this place with it. It's not a holiness rule problem. It's a simple problem that heaven is not heaven if it has sinners in it. If you talk about eternal life to people, people say, I don't think I want eternal life. No, because eternal life does not exist in this space. And if it did, it wouldn't be good. Eternal life only lives in this space where there is no sin, where there is no shame, where there is no brokenness and no sickness. So we have to be separated from our sin. And we sometimes treat sin as like a sort of backpack and we pick it up on the way and and we think, oh, we just leave it at the door and then we can go in. It isn't like that. I really believe when you start to read in and you start to get into the likes of Karl Barth and you start to read these, these theologians over the centuries, they see sin differently to the way we perhaps see it today as, oh, well, it's just I won't eat the apple and it will be all right. Actually, sin is an ontological problem for humanity. It is part of what we have become. It is sticking to us. It's not simply just bad decisions. It's more than that. And so this cross has to affect something that separates us from that. If we are to, as we are promised by Jesus, receive eternal life, then somehow sin has to go somewhere else. Now just to finish off, I just want to finish on a bit of a Example, which I had a while ago, a couple of weeks ago, which was to, actually, this is going to how, we won't go into that, but anyway, so it was to, to use a, a Tetra Pak, a, a fruit juice carton. I don't know if you know about these things, but they are made up of many layers. You won't be able to read that there, but there's card and there's plastic and there's plastic and there's plastic and there's tin foil and there's plastic. So they are, you know, many, many. Layers. Now, you can recycle these. Not in Southampton. Southampton, in its wisdom, thinks that burning everything is a great idea. But we won't go there now. In many parts of the country, you can recycle these. Sorry, Sarah, I wasn't looking at you as a representative of the council. But But I thought when they recycled them, they put them through some sort of meal and peeled them off. But then when I did a little bit of searching, I discovered that wasn't the case. And it struck me that it actually became even clearer as the problem. So when they recycle them, they have to rip these things to tiny little pieces. And they have to put them through this giant mill and they have to flood them with water. And they have to separate out all the parts. 
And when they do, they can then go and make new cars from them and they can make our newsprint from them and whatever. And it struck me that this is a bit like us. We started off perfect, but we become these layers of stuff and somehow we need the cross. The how is a question that we will live with forever. But in some way, without us being ripped to shreds, God has made a way that these things can pass into hell. These things can go. We can. The pure and refined humanity can gain the benefit of the cross and pass into heaven. We've got a problem. God has got a solution. And the irony of his solution is it comes at the moment when we do our absolute worst. If you take nothing else from the last 40 minutes, except that love wins. Nobody else has a sign, has a show in this. Thank you.